Welcome to The Culture Shift. We want this podcast to empower you as leaders to make impactful change in your workplace. I'm Vicky Bars, and I specialize in transforming organizations through equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives. In each episode, we'll delve deep into the fascinating world of workplace culture. Join me as I sit down with an array of incredible guests, including members of our very own Culture Shift team and industry experts. Through these thought-provoking conversations, we aim to equip you with the knowledge, tools, and inspiration you need to drive positive change in your workplace. Whether it's breaking down barriers, thinking about how you include a more diverse workforce, or fostering a culture of collaboration and belonging, we've got you covered. So let's dive straight into an episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Culture Shift today. I'm going to be sitting down with Kenya Peters, Product Marketing Manager here at Culture Shift. We're going to be talking about whether or not policies can change cultures in organisations. So Kenya, can you introduce yourself? Sure thing. Hi Vicky, thanks for having me. I'm Kenya, Product Marketing Manager here at Culture Shift. I've been doing that for about a year now, as you know. Um, and my background is entirely in marketing, um, whether that be activation, product marketing, content, etc. Uh, but my the reason I came to Culture Shift and the reason that I'm working here now is because alongside that I've had a growing interest in diversity, inclusion, and culture change within organisations. So that's been a heavy focus for my role here, mm. and also in previous roles where I've tried to kind of through engagement with kind of um, you know your resource groups and your staff networks uh, increase the amount of work that I'm doing with organizations to help them move their culture forward. So our topic for today is around whether or not policies can change organizational culture and mm-hmm. um, that we're going to have loads to talk about mm-hmm. um, but I think it's useful to start from a basis of acknowledging that different organizations um, will have different experiences of how policies can influence their organizational culture. And we work with loads of different size organizations. We are a very small organization um, and we obviously like are not that old as well. So um, culture is in its sixth year um, and um, we have been, you know, purposefully trying to make sure our policies and our processes um, are fit for purpose and go above and beyond and that our people understand, know them and like are brought to life. We're very different from um, big public institutions, for example, mm-hmm. like that have existed for hundreds of years and will have cultures embedded within that. So they'll have policies and that they'll have updated, um, but actually, you know, the underpinnings or behaviours and cultures that exist within an organisation, the yeah, they will exist, they will continue to, to be there. Um, so really, like, the big question is, like, how do policies actually influence and shape organisational culture? Like, can we really rely on them to do that? Yeah, I mean, the point that you make there about organisations being different is so important because you have big organisations, as you were saying, you've got these small organisations, and we're in a uniquely different position to other small organisations because this is our bread and butter. This is what mm. we do all the time. Like our ability to remain focused on what our policies look like on paper and then how we live and breathe them, it's so fundamental to the work that we do that we have to do that. Mm. Whereas if you look at marketing agencies, I've got a marketing agency background, we never had an HR person. In fact, introducing HR people into those smaller organizations is a new thing because people are seeing that elsewhere Mm. and the cultures in those places can often be very um, 
for want of a better word, toxic, yeah. uh, that people are calling for that. There is a hugely fundamental differences in where these organizations are starting from. But again, as you say, the behaviors exist regardless of the size of the organization. Having policies in place is important because essentially they're the backbone, right? They're the safety net that you have to fall back on to say, we've thought about this. If something happens, we know what the process is for resolving that. And you as an employee can look at that policy and say, this is what's going to happen if that behavior happens. But more so, it's a communication of what your expectations of your employees are. Mm. It's your way of saying, this is what we expect from you as an individual being within this community. Yeah. And if you don't uphold those expectations, then these are this is what would happen as, as a result of that. Um, when it comes to whether these policies can influence culture, ultimately they're just words on paper, yeah. right? And words on paper isn't really going to do enough to change somebody's behavior. Mm. How you communicate that outwardly, how mm. you make that more than just a document that you can find on your intranet, and make it a part of the everyday way you do things, that's the way that you're going to start to think about, okay, so how does this policy actually influence the way that we work as an organization? One of the things I find really useful about having something written down in policy is that when there is disagreement um, in the way in which something should be done, going back to your original intention and saying, well, actually, um, we do have core working hours, but we have written in our policy that they are somewhat flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can choose to start your day earlier and end it earlier or start your day later and end it later. Um, and having that written down somewhere means that everyone is working from the same basis and it sort of levels the playing field, I yeah. think is um, you know a phrase that we use a lot in, in ED&I. And um, there's obviously ways in which we want to support people, not just to be on a level playing field, but to redress ongoing issues that they've experienced. But as a, as a basis, like you say, as a backbone, as a start, everyone knowing where they're at and knowing what they can have and what they have rights to mm-hmm. um, and having that written down somewhere in black and white is really good. Really good, but then also where's the empowerment that you're giving to your people to know that they know the policy so well that they have the flexibility to play around with it as well? Mm. So being able to say yes, we have this flexibility in place, but we're also aware that not every employee's lives are going to play out the same. And therefore, a policy that works in, pra- in, in when you write it down on paper, in practice, you need to be able to maintain that flexibility to say, you know, we know that the policy says um, we'll allow five days of bereavement leave for somebody who's, if somebody in their immediate family passes away. But if the reality is, well, actually, no, because this person's dad passed away down the road in Manchester and my dad passed away in Australia, you've lost two and a half days of travel alone. Yeah. So where's that flexibility to be able to say, you know, in this case, we have this policy, but how do we adapt that? So in reality, it really works for the people that we're trying to make it work for. Yeah, and often policy isn't clear in what is a red line and what is flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I think a challenge for a lot of day-to-day line managers is that they are expected to know the policy off by heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like that is hard enough, right? And then they're expected to interpret the policy. They're expected to know which parts of the policy that they can like, yeah, tweak and change and be 
flexible in. And then, and then when something goes wrong, they're expected to defend their actions as well. <laughs> so I think, you know, taking on being a line manager is a big responsibility. And actually, I think leaders within organisations can support their line managers to understand how they use those policies in order to support their staff. And it's actually like something that I've heard a lot of employees talk about over the years that I've been like kind of thinking about writing, improving, working on policies is that people are like, well, you know, my manager will just do what they want to do anyway. Mm. Um, And actually, you know, especially if you're one of those larger organizations, finding consistency with flexibility is that constant balance and that constant challenge. Yeah. And for me, it just speaks to the overall culture of an organization. If things are going wrong consistently, people are going to keep looking back at that policy and pointing out where you're doing things wrong, Mm. pointing out where there is a lack of consistency and how different managers are doing things. If you've got a culture where people feel safe and supported enough to know that the organization is going to act in their best interests where they can, and there's this whole whole contentious point around HR and what HR's role and responsibility Mm. is. Is it to represent the organization? Is it to represent employees? And I think you can understand why, because a HR team does need to ensure that the organization is protected. Mm. But at the same time, the biggest way to help protect an organization is to ensure that your employees are safe, supported within the workplace. So it is that dual role, right? And when people know that they have a HR team that is going to support them, they're not going to be looking for the flaws. They're not going to be saying, well, you didn't do this and the policy says this. They're going to trust in the fact that it is a human making that decision. Mm. It's a human that chose to say, well, actually, this person could take time here because of this reason. And in this circumstance, the decision has been slightly different. It all falls in line with the policy and it falls in line with the level of flexibility. But it's about building that trust up so that people aren't looking for the flaws in the way that other humans are interpreting and taking action based on the policies that you've written and ensuring managers feel that the organization has their back Mm. if they choose to interpret policies in a slightly flexible way to like very appropriately adapt to people's needs Mm -hmm. um and if they don't like knowing they're not going to be thrown under the bus for it um and you know we deal in lots of things around when when people have difficult time in the workplace right so we talk about lots of experiences around bullying harassment discrimination and if something that was not followed in policy gets brought up at an employment tribunal that's a really difficult um position for everyone in the organization to be managing right mm-hmm. and actually that can you know those sorts of horror stories can force managers into a position where they go well if it doesn't say in the policy I can't let you do it and that is like reinforcing problem cultures yeah um, and so I guess like I want to bring it on to the point around like policies being living breathing documents that you are supposed to like regularly review regularly update they have their papers they have their purpose like they do articulate expectations as you already said but they do need to like stay with the moving culture because there isn't one there isn't one culture in an organization it's cultures and two um those cultures change over time because we are responsive to our environment we're responsive to wherever you are working in and whatever you're providing whether that's care services whether that is selling a product whether Mm -hmm. that is providing education like that you know you're responsive to the uh, purpose of your organization Mm -hmm. and policies need to respond to that as well don't they yeah absolutely i mean 
everything's transient, right? The people within your organization are going to continue to move. The environment within which your organization is operating is going to continue to change. And technology is going to advance. The way people are using technology within work, the way it's influencing the way people work, everything's moving around your workplace. So the rules and the guidelines that you have within your workplace, if they're not changing with that, then they become redundant and irrelevant almost straight away. As soon as you've put it in PDF format and said, that's it, things can change to, to, to make the policies that you've set out not irrelevant, but uh, out of touch yeah. and outdated. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like going back to what we were talking, what I was saying about, you know, this is a communication of our, um, of our standpoint. This is a communication of the expectations we have of you as a team. Um, the way in which you communicate that needs to be two-way. So that's first and foremost before you've even set your policy out, talking to your line managers, the managers, the front line of the people that are making sure that your policy is living and breathing and ensuring that they're brought into the process of creating those policies to be able to say... You know, what are the challenges that you're coming up against? Where are the areas where you need to know what you should be doing and where you need the flexibility to be able to change that? And then once that's established and you've said to your business, you know, this is our policy, what's the feedback back on that? Because if you're getting feedback that says, actually, this isn't going to work for us, but that's a now static piece of guidance that you've set out, people aren't going to engage with it. They're not going to respect it and they're not going Mm. to try and live by it. Um... So I can't remember your question. <laughs> oh, I don't think there was so much of a question as amusing. I think we were talking about, like, kind of thinking about, you know, do people actually, um, do people actually engage with these policies that are written? And I think your answer there was um, ideal in the sense of, you know, it has to be brought to life. It can't just be left on a piece of paper in, in, in a PDF in the yeah. back of the internet when no one sees it. I think, you know, there's a, there's a journey that people go on in terms of reading what they can expect from organisations. And part of that is information that people take um, at application level. So, like, when you're researching a company, like, what policies can you see? Like, do you know if your organisation allows time off for medical transition, mm-hmm. um, if you're a trans person? Do you know if your organisation would allow time off for IVF treatment if you're mm-hmm. a same-sex couple? Um, or if you're an opposite-sex couple and you're going through infertility challenges? Like, you know, is this information like, readily available? Because for a lot of people, it's buried under, like... Um, like you say, intranets or the back ends of systems that you can't you can't see that information in advance, and it's quite intimidating to approach an organisation and say, "Can I read this right. about this very personal thing in my life right. um, before I decide if I want to apply?" Um, so I, you know, think best practice is to have a lot of your policies really openly available for prospective employees to see and read and know and understand, and it's why. A lot of people do charter marks, for example, because that pulls some of the like realities of like, you know, if you do a Stonewall charter mark or you do the disability confident two ticks charter mark or, you know, any of the others that are out there. Um, if you have done those, you have been audited within your organisation to demonstrate that your policies meet certain standards, and so it's it's a flag to people yeah. to say sometimes you know a big old rainbow flag to say <laughs> you know we're inclusive and and i think that's one way of ensuring like your policies are speaking to people but there's definitely other ways yeah for sure so this like whole idea of transparency is so important i mean my 
I'm not an HR professional. My background is not in HR. A lot of my kind of thinking about HR policies has been usually when there's an issue mm. and looking at organizations and being like, well, what was their policy on that? Yeah. Like how, how has it got to this point where, they, where this has happened? And um, why has it gotten to a point where people have not followed that policy? Mm. And like you say, it's usually because people don't know what they are. Yeah. Like, if you look back at HR, what the hundred or so years that it's existed, and then you look at the way that HR operates today, there hasn't been the same level of advancement that you see in other, other functions. Of, yeah, in the technology or right. like if science. You look at, or <laughs> looking at yeah. HR systems, even the front-end HR systems, I know there's a lot of advancement maybe in the past uh, 10, 15 years, um, but a lot of the time it's very archaic. And yeah, we're no we, longer filing things in paper form, right? Some <laughs> people are. <laughs> oh, no, don't tell me that. <laughs> um, but the way in which we expect people to engage with our policies needs to change as well, mm. right? Whether that is having a podcast, an internal comms podcast, where you're talking about not just the policy, like not on page five you'll be able to see, but what that actually means in practice, what that mm. means for employees, how they can understand what working within the organization looks like. Or TikTok, TikTok's great. You can give somebody so much information about what your policy means, what your work culture, and I wanna stop calling it like what your policy means, because really the policy doesn't mean anything if it's not being lived and experienced culture, by people yeah. in the organization. One of the things I really appreciate that we do a Culture Shift is once a month we come together and we learn about like a specific um, diversity issue mm-hmm. um, and that helps to educate our workforce but in that conversation it usually gives us an opportunity to talk about our expectations around that thing right um, and, that, and that to me is quite like you know I don't think anyone sits at the front and goes this is what our policy says on this right um, but it is like you know bringing to life the, the reasons we care about it why it's important why we think everyone needs to know about it it helps mm-hmm. with like allyship amongst like managers and colleagues and it helps employees to know actually like this thing that I'm this might relate to me and it will be taken seriously and like it's kind of yeah I don't even know if we name check policies in in particular when we're talking about that but that sometimes we do talk about things within those policies that yeah, exist exactly right really practically yesterday we had our women's health training mm. um and I wouldn't call it training it's just a a learning session we're mm. learning about different issues that impact people within our team and we're doing so in a way that's relatable and relates to everybody in the room, even if you're not impacted by that. Like, what does that look like to you as a colleague um, when somebody's experiencing endometriosis? When somebody's uh, being diagnosed with endometriosis, what, like, what can that look like in the workplace and how can you support that colleague? Yeah. And then we have uh, then our pro- CEO stepping in to say, you know, if you're experiencing these symptoms, you can use your wellness days for yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. coming from the top and saying, you know, this is an important issue. And therefore, if you need to use that, I'm telling you as the CEO that you can do that in front of your line managers and directly to you. Just sends a really clear signal mm-hmm. that this policy isn't just there because it's something that we have to do. It directly impacts your life. And we want you to consider how, it impact, how that policy impacts your reality and how those two things come together. Yeah. So I think there's often a disconnect between what I'm going through in work, like what my work life looks like, and the policies that exist somewhere within the organization that I've not really looked at. Yeah. Since, or maybe like briefly read it when you first started because you were told to. Right. But 
have you absorbed it because you were taking in so much information on your first week right um, and we rarely come back to it until we until we need it until, until we need it. this is the other thing I've experienced in terms of policy writing is like you come back to them often when you're in distress mm. and that is not a useful time to take in information either so all the times in which you might engage with it, it's like when you're overwhelmed when you're stressed when you're like in need and like these are all not great times for information absorbing no and then also you look to so a lot of the times when I've had to look at policies it's because somebody's come to Mm. me because you know you work in this line of work and people think you're an expert in things that you are not (laughs) but always willing to help Mm. you look at these policies on behalf of people and you try and decipher them for them or find where they are in the first place and you can't like it's just Mm. not accessible in a way that means that when people are and that's me like going in to support someone and being like, this is overwhelming. So being the person that's in that point of distress to have to, one, locate a policy, two, find the right policy, three, find the part of that policy mm-hmm. that they're looking for, and then four, understand what that actually means to them. Yeah. And they're also written in such like legalistic language as yes. well. And that is to protect the organization. Mm-hmm. And so then when HR and people teams come to interpret that legalistic sort of terminology, it often like reinforces that myth that HR are there to protect the business and not to support individuals. Mm -hmm. And having worked in and with HR, it's not the case. Like most of the people there really do care about like trying to make people's working lives better. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is that they're like working with tools that like tie them up in knots about actually like legal protections and avoiding employment tribunals and these sorts of things. Right. Um, I think I read that around 58%, upwards of 50%, upwards of 55% of people, of HR professionals are consulting uh, legal firms before producing a policy. Mm. And like you said, that makes sense. But why not also bring other people into that process? Yeah. So bring your internal comms team, bring your marketing team in, because they're going to think about how do we communicate this in a way that makes sense to the rest of the team? Yeah. How do we communicate in a way that's going to be engaging? So don't stop at the point. Get the le- Make sure you've got the legal backing to say this policy works, the organization's protected. You're following the law. Yeah. Following the law. But again, that counterbalance of saying our job here isn't only to protect the organization, it's to protect individuals as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, that process of asking yourself the questions when you're writing your policy who's going to be impacted by this um who are we trying whose interests are we trying to represent who are we consulting in that process and then who's responsible for crafting the wording around that all of those things come into play when you're thinking about creating your policies and the policies that are going to work for your organization Mm -hmm. So we've talked quite a lot about um, why we'd have policies to set organisational tone, organisational culture um, and expectations. Um, I guess it'd be useful to maybe have a conversation about when that goes badly wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, We see quite a lot of examples of organisations being pulled through the press. Um, Organisations like Brewdog, Save the Children, London Fire Brigade, um, the South Wales Fire and Rescue Service as well, um, have all had these big moments mm. where um, the press have revealed a, an incident's happened or a series of incidents or an ongoing sort of s- concerning behaviour um, and they've brought people in to do these external reviews yeah. um, and it'd be really interesting to think about like, do they work? <laughs> Are they making an impact? Are they changing organisational culture? Yeah. Um, so I think for some of them it's, it's, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because... One of the challenges with those reviews is 
how much you actually hear from the organizations after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, a lot will tell you that there's work happening and changes are being made, but the amount that you see that particularly as somebody outside of the organization is often not as much as you'd mm -hmm. hope. Um, but organizations do one of a number of things, right? Something bad happens and if they are well prepared, well set up and have a team who are tuned into the issues of things that might be happening, then they can come forward with a collected response and an action orientated plan on how they're going to make change. The mm -hmm. reality is that rarely happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and organizations go into oh shit mode yeah. and can have these responses that inflame the issue. Yeah. Overpromising, right? That's Overpromising. A massive right? one. We will no lot we do not tolerate these behaviors. This mm -hmm. will not happen again. Our senior leadership team are committed to ensuring that these behaviors do not happen within our organization. And again, it's words. It's words. Yeah. You can't eradicate like centuries of sexual violence in the workplace overnight. Right. Like these things happen in society. They're going to happen in your organization. And um, to claim just because you have being caught with someone perpetrating that behavior in your organization to claim that you can eradicate it with a statement, with an action plan, with a cultural audit, whatever it might be, um, is a false promise. Mm -hmm. um, like taking it seriously, addressing it, um, taking like considered action that has been consulted on mm -hmm. throughout your workforce um, and actually like taking them with you on that journey and realizing it's going to be a pretty long journey. Yes. <laughs> um, we talk about conscious transformation a lot and we, um, I personally like have an expectation that you're talking a minimum of 10 years oh, yeah. to see a really true transformation from perhaps having like toxic workplace everyday cultures that allow like perpetration of sexual violence, for example, or bullying to continue in the workplace through to being the kind of organization where these things probably will still happen, mm -hmm. but someone feels safe to talk up about it. So you have like effective re resolution um, actions that you take and also that you've been thinking about prevention of those behaviors in the first place. Right. And you are hearing about them when they happen, but you're hearing about them less because mm. the people in the organization know that it's something that you will be taking seriously. But you're right, that takes time. Yeah. And nobody's expecting organizations to solve it overnight. No. And I think, organ I think sometimes leaders can feel like the ask is, do something about this to stop this from happening right now. Yeah. When in actuality, the ask is, you're going to have three groups of people really when, when these things happen. You're going to have the people who have been saying it the whole time, and a culture of you can be really valuable for just affirming and validating mm -hmm. their experiences. You're going to have the naysayers that say this does not happen in our organization. And you've got a job to do there in terms of bringing them on the journey to say, well, it might not be your experience, but it's definitely an experience. And evidencing it, right? And evidencing that fact that that does, in fact, happen within the organization, whether you want to believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we need to make change. And then you can have the people that are shocked and like, wow, this happens. Yeah. I don't not believe it, but it's shocking news to me. And for them, you need to do something to almost rebuild trust to say, we know this happens. It's good that you've not had to experience it yourself, but we need you to be a part of the journey to make sure it stops happening for everybody else. And it's so interesting that you use the term shock because I think um, the organizations who have had this, these issues hit the press because absolutely we have to admit here, like, 
most organizations have these issues mm. <laughs> like it's not that, that there aren't organizations having these challenges it's that certain ones hit the press and it is because their stories provide a shock factor so i think some of that shock sometimes comes from the exposure of a particular incident and often not through internal communication but through the media usually right. getting hold of a particular story sometimes that has been driven by people who have been the target of that behavior mm-hmm. feeling like the internal resolutions are not effective within their organization and their last resort is to go and tell the press their story. Um, And actually that can be a really valuable activist tactic to getting an organization to move because once their reputation is put at risk, um, they will do something about it. And it's amazing the number of organizations I've seen throw money into addressing some of these culture damaging behaviors um, once they've finally been publicly embarrassed about it. Right. And, like, this isn't a call to action to everybody that's, like, (laughs) going through something right now to just go to the press. That's not the solution. That's not where we want people to go. We want people... We want these issues to be addressed way before the fact, Mm. way before the time at which somebody's saying, the only way that I can create real and effective change is to go to the press about this. Yeah. And organizations don't need to be scared about that because, yeah, there can be instances where you have people who are not likely to take your resolution well we see all the time like one of the biggest things about of, of, of going through a case of reporting any form of um uh, misconduct is on the other side people are rarely satisfied with the outcome and that's usually the case so organizations can Absolutely. expect that people will want to do that but mm. so long as they're doing enough to make sure that the majority of people understand what their actions and their behaviors are they don't need to worry about people running off to the press. It's when you have a large amount of people saying, my organization is not actually doing anything about this. That's when it becomes an issue. Yeah. If the press like return to an organization and say, what have you got to say about this? And they can go, well, actually, here's the five-year plan that we've been working on for the last three years. Here's all the workshops we've been running. Here's all the prevention campaigns that we've been doing. Like, it's just not a story. It's just not a story anymore. <laughs> um, so but you turn you're... to an organization and say, what have you been doing? And they've got nothing. And they turn to the employees and say what's going on here and the employees say well actually there is a story here then that's when that's when it's a problem exactly yeah and going back to your question of do these um do these reviews work they have an effect Mm. they create public noise and therefore they create public pressure yeah uh like i said they validate the experiences of the employees that are there and they create action like, regardless of whether we get to see it or not, you oftentimes they create some level of action. Yeah. The question is, how effective is that action and how long is that maintained for? How long is that energy kept up? Because we saw it with the McPherson report. Yeah. There was a report, there was action, and we're in the exact same place place really yeah energy just dips right everyone's like gets enthusiastic about it says we're going to do something and then we see we see that energy dip and actually there are a few key things that if you're a leader of an organization i think we should be taking away from this conversation which is like um confessing and knowing you have a problem Mm -hmm. like anyone who is denying that their organization has any culture damaging behaviors in it whatsoever is in denial Mm -hmm. like it is it is not true every single large organization will have its challenges every single small organization will have its interpersonal disputes and they might be slightly like better or might be slightly easier to resolve the big kind of cultural stuff because you're smaller but actually you know 
every single organization will have its its challenges and being like equipped and ready to respond to those challenges is really key and then with the like longer term cultural transformation work like sustaining the resources that you put into it sustaining the energy like continuous improvement continuous review of like the things that you're doing like okay well we've done that intervention like what next um looking back at your data looking at um intersecting experiences there's so much that you could always be doing this work is plentiful and it often um yeah dries up um, a couple of years after the big report has been put out exactly Um, and it goes back to the role of managers and the the state of accountability when you put that work out. Mm-hmm. So who is accountable and responsible for putting that forward? A lot of responsibility is often put on managers to just continue doing the work. But we're managers. My job is product marketing and yours is in cultural transformation. Managing a team and keeping those values alive is a part of our job, not the whole thing. And yeah. I think too often, too much of the accountability and responsibility is put there. And that chain of accountability all the way to the top uh, and back down and that kind of cycle uh, Mm. often breaks down right so these reviews come out and we see the reality of the of, of, of the culture within these organizations and bringing it back to policy oftentimes these experiences are happening when the policies exist anyway that say it shouldn't that say it shouldn't yeah so it's not and one of the responses is often you know we're going to look at our policies you'll end up in the same place. Yeah. You'll then have a new policy that says that these behaviours really shouldn't happen and then they'll continue to be perpetrated mm-hmm. throughout the organisation because it's not about the policy alone, it's about the cultures and behaviours that you're allowing to manifest within your organisation. Like, I've spent a lot of time looking at the London Fire Brigade um, report, mm. uh, the, the, the cultural review of the London Fire Brigade, and some of the behaviours in there were heartbreaking i think that's the word that nazira who wrote the report said you have examples of black colleagues having nooses left at their desk of muslim employees having bacon scraped across their plate before they ate food like that is vindictive that's horrible horrible behaviors that people are perpetrating and normalized to the point that it's a joke and it's colloquialized as banter yeah and it's not like that. I couldn't imagine doing that to someone in a million years. Mm. But it was the behaviors that were normalized. And this isn't to bash the London Fire Brigade because the report also showed that some of the best cultures within the, with the that, that, that Nazir had seen anywhere existed within yeah. the fire brigade. The trust you need to work in that sort of environment. Right. right? And actually, it's really interesting that some of the, some of the things you're saying around sort of banter is actually really um, what we saw in higher education around the lag culture report that Mm. was done um, back in, I think, 2015, I want to say, maybe a bit earlier than that. Um, uh, uh, We will put a link to it so you can see when it actually was. (laughs) But that found the same things, right? So it was a lot of the time that lag culture was being perpetrated in, like, sporting environments Mm -hmm. where there was that need for, like, bonding and team building. And actually, like, we've moved through time where the reliance on 
on doing that to create those bonds has been identified as like not necessary. Like there are yeah. other ways that you can build trust and build teams. And it sounds like London Fire Brigade like have that, right? They yeah. have ways in which they build that trust and they have those bonds and, and that's a wonderful culture because yeah. like, yeah, going into a burning building with someone, you've got to bloody well be able to trust them, right? right. Um, and so, yeah, like having these culture damaging behaviors happening at the same time as well, like the need to eradicate them and, and the London Fire Brigade are taking these really seriously and, and continuing to work on it, aren't they? Yeah, and absolute, like, kudos to um, Andy Rowe, who's the commissioner of the Fire Brigade, uh, the London Fire Brigade, for taking accountability and saying, you know, I accept that this is the state of the culture within our organisation and we're taking it seriously and we will do things to change it. Uh, but not London Fire Brigade specific for any organisation that's promising to make these changes. You need to accept that putting things down on paper and writing out a comprehensive plan for what that will look like isn't going to change the hearts and minds of the people within your organization, mm. particularly going back to those kind of three, those three audiences, if you will. If you look at those naysayers, making them believe that their behaviors need to change, making them understand that what they're doing that they think is fine actually isn't, and it's contributing to a culture that has dire consequences for people that are at the butt end of those jokes or yeah. or, or, or the, the laddish behavior that's that's causing the behaviors though and the group that you were talking about around the people who are like shocked by it like the what they're the, probably the people who it's not being done in front of very often right uh, and obviously like these are we're talking about big organizations with complex structures and these are pockets of behavior like with these often in these big audits aren't happening necessarily across the organization while some of these behaviors can be pervasive and everyday for some people yeah. doesn't mean that everyone sees it all the time right um and so like educating those people about when if they do notice it mm -hmm. what can they do about it right and this is where the sort of active bystander work that we do comes into play like being able to identify something as a problem being able to take action like to intervene when mm -hmm. you witness it um, and then being able to like follow up with the individual who has experienced it yes. to make them know that it's been seen yes. and that their experience is validated and that they're supported um, and like those are the people who yeah aren't shocked by the report and actually validates their experiences right and I, I really love this theory that you're talking about with those three different audiences I think it really helps to exemplify like why these reports work mm -hmm. I'd love us to think a bit more about like, what do people do three years on, five years on? Like, what's that look like, and 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 what? How are they sustaining and and continuing to communicate back to those audiences? So, years on, three, five, hopefully ten years on, for organisations to take this seriously to ensure that the changes uh, has longevity to it, you need to do all of those things that we've spoken about already. So, start. You do need to start with policies, I think. You need to start with not necessarily a written down, um, not necessarily creating new policies, but assessing what the behaviours are that you've stated in the policies, what the behaviours are that you want the people within your organisation to be exemplifying, what you think the correct uh, means of uh, remediation are when things go wrong. And if that's not reflected in your, if that is reflected in your policy, how do you make sure that people are adopting those behaviours? So what does a comprehensive training plan look like? Mm. How does that training exist outside of a one-hour session that people never yeah. think about again after the fact? Um, how do you communicate these, uh, this, this, new, this culture that you want to create on an ongoing basis? And um, 
in marketing, you have kind of a, a, a 7C communication structure, and I'm going to struggle to tell you all of them here. You don't need to, don't worry. Um, but it's about essentially your uh, clarity, how concise you are, how comprehensive the message is that you're, um, you're communicating. Mm. Um, and then there's one at the end that I always like to replace with consistency. Yeah. So it's that drip theory. It's how do you yeah. say this once and then make sure that it's said time and time again. Mm -hmm. So that's not just for the next six months while the spotlight's still on you. How do you know that somebody that started in your organization on day one of you changing was correctly onboarded, they've seen the policies, they've had the necessary training, and three years on, they've sat in meetings where things have been reiterated to them. Yeah. They've had to refresh their memory on our ways of working guide because that really brings to life the way in which we interact with people and we communicate and we speak up if we don't have the ability to, we speak up if we experience behaviors that we don't think aligns to the values of the organization, which leads on to having that comprehensive platform and process for people being able to speak up. and. I'm sure in every podcast episode we come back to the fact <laughs> that not as often as you think actually, but yeah, we've uh, <laughs> got to put an idea about that. <laughs> uh, obviously, we deal with creating cultures where people feel like they can speak up, mm. and that is in the moment. So, being able to have that confidence of saying, "Actually, that doesn't sit quite right with me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't like that behavior. I don't like what you've just said." Um, can we avoid having those kinds of conversations in the workplace? Uh, and then, as you've mentioned, that allyship, uh, that active bystander uh, ac action of um, sp speaking up to the person or with the person that was impacted after the fact, yeah. um, whether that is with a platform that people can report on anonymously or named, or creating the channels where you can have those conversations with your line managers uh, and line managers are equipped in having those conversations on an ongoing basis to say, somebody's experienced something in my team and I know how to handle that. I know that I might not have the answer, or I might not have the policy stored in my head of what I should be doing with this person here, but I know exactly where to go to, and I know the chains of command if I need support in being able to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think I heard in one of your, in, 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 the, in the previous podcast episode with Chelsea, um, of the horror stories, you referenced the horror stories where people don't actually speak to their line manager for months and months mm. or ever. And if those relationships don't exist within your organization, then who do you have that's reinforcing policies yeah. to people? Who do you have for people to turn to to ask questions if they're not quite sure where to go to? So to lead by example, set a cultural to tone. Yeah. Right, exactly, right? So when it comes to how do we make sure that after these reviews, how do we make sure that after these moments, we have that continuity of action, you need to have your team set up. You need to make sure that you have structures in place and you have the channels of communication to ensure that you can continuously communicate your policies in ways that are relatable, in ways, ways that are easily understood, uh, and, and in a way that people are going to see it as more than just a document mm. and as what it means to be a part of your team. Thanks so much, Kenya. It's been um, a really useful conversation. I think, Good. you know, it's been really helpful to reflect on whether or not people ever read policies, why they're useful, what is the purpose of them in an organisation, how they can be done badly, how they can be done well. Um, we've talked a lot as well at the end there around cultural audits and these cultural reviews and whether they're effective and, and what 
people can do to make them effective. So yeah, thank you so much for this uh, useful and really insightful uh, episode and looking forward to um, getting it out to people. Well, no, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been really fun. It's been, you know, like I say, we talk about this stuff all the time. Mm. So it's good to do it on camera with a microphone for once. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for tuning into this episode of The Culture Shift. We hope you found it insightful and informative. We really appreciate your support and value your feedback. So if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, share your thoughts, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button to stay updated on when we release new episodes. If you're interested in our other content or how Culture Shift can help your organization, check out our YouTube channel, website, or drop us a message, and I'll see you next time.